This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hi there, everybody. It's a glorious, happy edition of Rico Bronia, a far cry from the crappy mood we were all in four days ago. We're all in a good mood because if you root for a New York football team, you're either 2-0, and thinking that Brian Dable is the greatest head coach of all time, or receipts are about to be cashed in. Now nah, I'm kidding. Baldy has a long way to go before he's cashing any receipts, but I'll say this, and obviously Craig and I will talk a lot more on Monday, uh, two to seven, Carton Roberts, but it's about freaking time that this football team wins a game that they would have lost for the last 50 years. That feels good. Now let's get to the Mets. They needed to do what they just did. Now let's, let's be perfectly honest about it. After they got swept by the Chicago Cubs, and I was starting to panic, and Hoff was you know, sort of starting to panic, we were all very nervous to different degrees. We looked at these four games against the Pirates, a crappy Pirate team, and said, you got to kill them. You got to annihilate them. Now, I wouldn't say the Mets annihilated them. There were certainly some stressful moments. Uh, certainly the Sunday game when Jacob DeGrom gives up the three-run home run to O'Neill Cruz was a little bit stressful when they had a 4 nothing lead that turned into a 4-3 to game and Edwin Diaz is holding on for dear life. It was actually a 4-1 to game that turned into a 4-3 game. The Saturday game was a little nerve-wracking, but here's the bottom line. We looked at these four games against Pittsburgh and said, three out of four ain't good enough. You got to sweep them. And they did. And they played 36 innings this weekend Never trailed, never, ever trailed, which is great because I think they trailed every inning of the Cubs series. I don't know if there was an inning where the Mets actually had a lead in the three-game sweep. I don't think they did, but they led for 32 of the 36 innings. There were some stressful moments. I don't think we all feel super confident in the offense because despite the fact that they scored a healthy amount of runs over these four games, they still sort of lack the consistent big hit. And look, I don't want to sit here nitpicking for 45 minutes because here's the reality. None of that crap matters. What happened on Saturday doesn't matter when they're in Milwaukee. What happened on Sunday doesn't matter on Wednesday in Milwaukee. So it is irrelevant how they won games. I'm just saying I think our feeling probably is, hey, it could have been better. They had 52 at-bats over these four games with runners in scoring position. And they went 11 for 52. And I don't need to do the math for you. You don't need to whip out your calculator. I think we all know that's just not good enough. Did they get big hits? Sure. Eduardo Escobar at the three-run home run on Saturday. Daniel Vogelback really broke out, which was encouraging. But there were a lot of moments in these four games. And we'll go through a little bit more specifically these games. There were moments where they lacked that big hit. And they also were very fortunate because they had not one, 
not two, not three, but four plate appearances in this four-game series in which they drove a run in on either a walk or a batsman. Now, obviously, drawing a walk is a good thing, and sometimes the hitter deserves credit for drawing a walk, so I don't want to minimize it, but there were four sequences in which that's how the Mets scored their runs, on bases loaded walks or earlier in this series when Pete Alonso got hit by a pitch with the bases loaded. He was not bitching about that hit by pitch, which we'll also get into because there was a chance on Sunday with very few people watching, with the main focus being on football, that the Mets were finally going to get into a fight because of the amount of times they got hit by pitches. Um, Look, my only point to all this is as they play the Brewers, a much more difficult team, a potential playoff team, a team that handled the New York Yankees over the weekend. Give the Brewers credit. Every game is big for them, and they won two out of three against the first-place team. But as the Mets play Milwaukee, and then obviously the showdown in two weeks with Atlanta, they got to clean this crap up. That's really what it comes down to. When you play a bad baseball team, you're going to be able to make some mistakes, not have the greatest at-bats in the world, and overcome it. And there were times in this series where they did that. With that said, they won four consecutive games. It is not easy to sweep a four-game series, and they did it. And that was very, very necessary. You go back to the opener of this series, I thought the biggest at-bat they had was, remember, they're coming on a three-game losing streak. We're all panicking. We're all worried. The Mets are now a front-page story for negative reasons because there's worry after being swept by the Chicago Cubs. And that first inning, I thought, really set the tone for this series. Because one thing that's been going on for a while now is that rally in the first inning that goes nowhere. We've seen that a lot, where the Mets will put guys on base in the first inning, it'll go nowhere, and then the offense will die. So opener of this series, there are two outs and nobody on. Looks like nothing's happening against the immortal JT Brubaker, and they slowly start a little two-out rally. Jeff McNeil gets a single, Pete Alonso gets a blue pit, and then you had Daniel Vogelback, who finally started hearing boos a day before this, and rips, smokes, that two-run double. And I think, and I don't know, I this is speculative, but I think as a fan, maybe we read it for ourselves and think this is the way the players are going to feel. But a hit like that has to relax you. I think it relaxed me a little bit because, like I mentioned, they never led in that series against the Cubs. So right out of the gate, boom, to get a two-run double by Daniel Vogelback, immediately take a 2 nothing lead, it made me relax as I'm sitting there at City Field on that Thursday night, I was in the building that night, me and uh, about 13 other people. I'm not going to take too many shots at the Met attendance because two things. Number one, I've noticed that my fellow Met fan is very sensitive about the Met attendance. I put out a picture from Thursday night um, with the crowd. That's all I did, just a picture of the crowd. I said, Penn and Ray's baseball, and half the people were pissed at me. Like, oh, yeah. what, are you, what are you saying? What are you doing? I'm not saying anything. I'm giving you a picture of the crowd saying pennant raise baseball. Draw your own conclusion. I even had one guy, and I hope this guy's listening right now because this really hurt my feelings. And it takes a lot to hurt my feelings on Twitter. You could say whatever you want, usually won't. Pete, this really hurt my feelings. You know what this guy said to me? Son of a bitch. I mean, what, I'm, is something about the, your no, hair? No, no, no. You could insult what oh. I look like. <laughs> you could say I'm terrible on the radio. Like None of that stuff would bother me. <laughs> He impugned my integrity. That's what bothered me. The guy said to me, how dare you take a picture from 50 to an hour before first pitch? 
And I said, listen, jackass, I get off the air at 6.30. I took a train to City <laughs> Field. How am I giving you a picture from an hour before the game? The picture was from 7.10. It was 10 minutes before the game because it was the 7.21st pitch on Roberto Clemente night. This guy impugned my integrity like I'm out to get the Mets attendance. Why the hell would I be out to get the Mets attendance? That's so ridiculous. I, I, listen, I mean, anybody that listens to you knows you don't get off the air till 630. So, I mean, that's just outrageous. But I, I will say this, though. To piggyback your frustration and not taking jabs, but the Mets fan has been dying for relevance for a long time. It's here, and they're not Yeah, there. look, I— I will say this. They drew incredibly well on Saturday. There was 41,000 people Saturday night. Clearly, the Gary Cohen bobblehead is a big draw. And they actually did really well on Sunday. (laughs) Considering the Jets are playing, the Giants are playing, it's a Sunday afternoon in the fall. They announced 36,000 people. Now, Jake's on the mound, so you'd expect a big crowd. So I'm not knocking the crowds from Saturday and Sunday. But the midweek crowds were terrible. And the truth is, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. When they play postseason baseball this year, they're going to be packed crowds. That's that's the bottom line. But, look, I think that hit by Vogelback relaxed me. What actually frustrated me is that Carrasco gave it right back. He gave up an RBI double in the second inning. I'm like, ah, here we go again. But Lindor hit a clutch two-run home run. It had been a while since Lindor had a big hit like that. And then really the rest of the night was cruise control because Carlos Carrasco was so good. We saw good cookie on Thursday night, Mark Vientos got his first major league hit, so that was nice to see. And it really set a positive tone for this series. It did. The other great thing was on Friday, seeing Taiwan Walker pitch as well as he did. Because now Taiwan Walker's responded with consecutive really good performances. He pitched into the eighth inning. I actually like that Buck pushed him. Buck Showalter, and he's done this a lot, where he'll push his starting pitcher. We just live in a world in which... Guys can't go eight innings. They just, they mostly can't. And it isn't necessarily because managers aren't allowing them to do it. Buck Showalter allowed Taiwan Walker to start the eighth inning with a four to one lead. So it wasn't eight to nothing. You know, it wasn't like game was out of reach. It was still a relatively close game. And he allowed him to pitch the eighth inning. And he allowed him to stay in the game to face the top of the order, the fourth time around the order, and face O'Neal Cruz. And what was surprising about it, but I didn't hate it. I want to make that clear. I'm not ripping Buck Showalter here because I like that he challenged Taiwan Walker. I think we're at the point of the season where you're going to challenge guys, and you know when you play the Braves, you're going to make the safest moves possible. You're going to manage it like the postseason. When you're playing a quadruple-A team like the Pittsburgh Pirates, I think there's more wiggle room to challenge guys. We'll get to David Peterson out of the bullpen. That was sort of a a little challenge for David Peterson over the weekend. So he allows Taiwan Walker to face O'Neal Cruz. And let's not forget, in O'Neal Cruz's earlier at bat, he hit that ball to the warning track where Jeff McNeil made the leaping catch. That was O'Neal Cruz. So when you combine the fact that it's the eighth inning, Walker's right around 100 pitches, a little, little underneath that. I'd say about 96, 97. He's just given out a hit, given up a hit, and he's facing the order four time around, and he's facing a guy who almost did a home run against him. But I liked it. I like him at least saying, all right, Ty, go get him out. The problem is he didn't get him out. He didn't. But what Buck had in the back pocket was, I have a fresh Edwin Diaz. And I don't necessarily think Buck Showalter was managing Saturday night 
with this feeling of, I guess that was Friday night. I'm, I'm getting these nights confused. Yeah, it was Friday night. It was game two of this series when Taiwan Walker pitched. I think he went to Edwin Diaz because he had arrested Edwin Diaz. Not necessarily that he was looking at that game as, oh my God, this is a must-win game. I'm looking for five outs from Edwin. I think he's been, you know, knowing when he's got a guy who's fresh like Diaz, I may as well use him for five outs. I'm not going to F around this game. I'm not going to, you know, walk around and try. And he could have used Adovino because Adovino hadn't pitched the previous night. So it wasn't as if Adam Adovino was tired or anything like that. I think it was more, I'm going to use Edwin Diaz. And look, Edwin wasn't that sharp. He gave up the line drive on the first pitch. And I think the book is out. Teams are attacking Edwin Diaz's first pitch. He pours in that first pitch strike so consistently. And you've noticed it last few appearances where teams are attacking right out of the gate. But he gets those final two outs of the eighth inning. And then a reminder on why Luis Guillerme is so valuable to this team. Because after Diaz issues that four-pitch walk, which was very concerning to start the ninth, nursing what's now only a 4-3 to three game, because the Mets can't get a big hit, which was a problem on this game, and the fact that Walker gave up that two-run home run, he issues the four-pitch walk, and then not only do you get a great throw from Tomas Nito, but you get the great defensive play by Guillermo, blocking Greg Allen's ability to get the second base. And that's why Luis Guillermo is a nice little hitter, but he's in here for his glove. He's in here for his defense, or in this case, he's in here for his blocking ability. But that was a great, great play by Luis. And then Diaz was able to get the last two outs. So the third out was very, very scary. 0-2, Cal Mitchell hits one of the freaking warning track. But that was one of those games where if the Mets lose or if Diaz actually blows a save, which he hasn't done since May, but you know we're all nervous it's coming at some point. Very few guys complete perfect seasons. I know Brad Lidge did it many years ago. And Diaz hasn't blown a game since May. But the Mets missed out on so many opportunities to blow that game open. And I think that's what I was talking about earlier with their struggles with runners in scoring position that, okay, they get a home run from Daniel Vogelbach. They got a clutch RBI single from Nito early in the game. They built an early lead. But they had, I think it was second and third, nobody out. Bases loaded two out in the sixth. They only scored one run. You look at the seventh inning, O'Neill Cruz makes a defensive miscue. They get the bloop by Brandon Nemo, but now you've got Lindor and you've got McNeil up with two men on and one out. They don't score. Then you go to the eighth inning. You get a walk from Vogelbach, pinch hit, pinch run extraordinaire. Terrence Gore comes into the game, steals second, gets to third. You're all set up for an insurance run, and Mark Hanna strikes out. So they won the game. We're all thrilled, but they missed out on so many opportunities. And I think that's the thing that, you know, was sort of frustrating. That they had a chance to blow that game open. But great job by Jeff McNeil in right field, too. Making the leaping catch earlier in the game against O'Neill Cruz. That's part of the beauty of Jeff McNeil is that he is so solid. I don't want to say he's like great defensively. He's so solid defensively no matter where you put him. And as good as he's been at second base this year, and he's had a great defensive year, Luis Guillermo is better. So when you stick him in right and he still makes all the plays out there, nothing spectacular, but goes out and makes all the plays, you probably have your best defensive team out there until Marte comes back. That'll be interesting, though, when Marte does come back. And I think if he does, hopefully he does, when he comes back, here's what I'm considering. Here's what I'd really strongly consider. I'd strongly consider Eduardo Escobar being the DH. And that could mean less at-bats, for Darren Ruff, Mark Fientos against lefties. 
And that could even mean lost at-bats for Daniel Vogelback because that could mean Guillerme plays third base, Jeff McNeil plays second base, Starling Marte plays right. Now, you got to play the matchups. Maybe you want to sit Guillerme against the lefty. But again, Guillerme's there for his glove. That's why he's out there. He's not out there because you think he's going to hit a bunch of home runs or drive in a bunch of runs. You expect quality at-bats from him, but he's mostly out there for his glove. Uh, the Saturday night game was the Bassett game. Great bounce back performance. You could feel that coming too from Chris because Bassett's earlier game against the Cubs on Monday was so un Chris Bassett like. And that's why none of us were going to kill him. How could we kill the guy? Guy's had such a solid year all year long. He comes out, gets an early double play, really goes into cruise control, pitches very, very well. It was a good performance by him. They get the home run by Eduardo Escobar, who continues to be red hot basically for the last month. And they were able to win a game fairly easily against the Pirates, 4-1. to one. I know the Pirates got a late run in that game against uh, David Peterson. But David Peterson was impressive. I don't know if it changes how maybe we all view David Peterson as an arm out of the bullpen. I know Hoff hates David Peterson, doesn't ever want to see him out of the bullpen. It's weird. They go to him in the seventh inning of a 4 nothing game. So you can't say it's a blowout, but obviously it's not a one-run game. And you're facing the Pittsburgh Pirates. But he, did, but he pitched well. He pitched a 1-2-3-7. He pitches a 1-2-3-8. He strikes out three guys. He eventually gives up the home run to Rodolfo Castro. But that's after he got the first six outs. So I'll ask you, did it move you a little bit seeing David Peterson come out of the pen and pitch well? I'm still concerned, and this is why. In a playoff situation, there is little... There are very minimal times there's a hot, that it's not a high-leverage situation. So you're right, 4 nothing. it's not this huge lead, but it's still the Pirates. It's not, to me, a high-leverage situation. So I still have doubt for him to be in the playoffs. He's going to get role. other opportunities in high-leverage spots before we get to October. Uh, it could be in this series against Milwaukee. It could be in the series against Oakland. I wonder if he'll do it against the Braves with some fearsome left-hand hitter, specifically a guy like Matt Olson. But we're going to see more of this because barring any kind of injury and and even injury, the Mets have so many off days coming up for the, for the rest of the season that David Peterson is not making another start. Again, unless the Mets get ravaged by starting pitching injuries, knock on wood, David Peterson's only role now is coming out of the bullpen. And I think Buck's going to play around a little bit. He's going to play around a little bit with Tyler McGill, who's going to come back soon, and maybe even Joey Lucchese and Drew Smith. I mean, you've got all these guys coming back who are also sort of being experimented out of the bullpen. Like, Tyler McGill looked great in his early rehab performances, and then in his last two rehab performances didn't pitch well. Now, I don't know what we make of that. The truth is we should make nothing of it because until we see him do it at the major league level, good or bad, it's tough to really judge. I think you got to ask yourself this. And I know you don't necessarily have to use a lefty out of the bullpen. You could bring in a righty to get a tough lefty out. I, I get that. Joely Rodriguez pitched great on Sunday in the finale of this series. We have to give him credit. Goes out there, two scoreless innings. I think he struck out five guys. A part of why the Mets uh, basically set a record with the amount of times they struck out the Pittsburgh Pirates. Struck him out 20 times on Sunday. Certainly Jacob DeGrom had a lot to do with it. But so did Joely Rodriguez. Would you rather throw Joely in a high-leverage spot against the tough lefty, or would you th- rather throw David Peterson in a high-leverage spot against the tough lefty? The answer, of course, could be none of the above. 
The the answer would be Adam Adovino. <laughs> Not against the lefty, you don't. No, I, but out of those three at that point, I don't even know. It's all no, off the ribs. No, no, no. Adam Adovino's splits tell you you want him in the lane of facing right-handed hitters. It doesn't mean he can't get a lefty out, but ideally, you don't want Adam Adovino facing a slugging left-handed hitter in a big spot. You just don't. I like, though, that Buck threw him in there. I think we're always going to have that Yankee game as a taste in our mouth when Peterson came in with a two-run lead and promptly put a guy on base and then gave up the home run of Glaber Torres. I agree it's tough to make too much of it because it's the Pittsburgh Pirates, but we haven't seen the last of it. And I think we're going to see with the other guys too. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I still think we're looking at auditions for the bullpen. Here are the guys we know. We know Edwin Diaz is obviously going to be the closer and get probably more than three outs on most nights. We know Adam Adovino is your second most reliable arm and will be asked to get big outs specifically in the seventh or eighth inning. And I think Seth Lugo's been solid. That would be the way I describe it. Uh, Seth Lugo's been relatively solid. The rest of it's an open audition. I mean, Trevor Williams are a long man. You get into trouble early in the game. We know about Trevor Williams, and he gave a great answer on the Met pregame when Steve Gelbs was asking him about how he's adjusted. And Williams looks, you know, deadpan. He's like, well, I drink a lot less or something like that. Made me laugh. He's got a good personality. Should do stand-up next time Pete Alonso has a, uh, has a comedy event. But they go out. They win the Saturday night game. And then we've got this finale with Jacob DeGrom on the mound. And... Sometimes you have to admit where you're wrong. And I'm going to admit where I'm wrong, or at least where I'm concerned moving forward. Jacob DeGrom was pushed on Sunday afternoon to get through the sixth inning. His pitch count was very, very high. It had a lot to do with the first inning where he threw, what was it, 25 pitches in the first inning. He gave up that leadoff double and then goes out and strikes out the side. But it wasn't easy. It wasn't bing, 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 strikeout, bing, 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 strikeout. A lot of foul balls. He had to battle. And so DeGrom, because he was striking so many guys out, which is a good thing. No one's complaining about that. I needed every one of those strikeouts in my fantasy week, though it turned out to be too little too late. I lost. Jake did everything he could. I don't blame him. His pitch count started really, really exploding. And through five innings, he has struck out 13 guys He'd allowed one base hit. He had retired everybody consecutively prior to that leadoff double he gave up to O'Neill Cruz. But his pitch count was very, very high. And I'm not suggesting Jake should have come out after five innings. You heard me a couple of days ago on the Rico. I wanted to push him in the middle game of that series against the Chicago Cubs. Because, hey, you got to push him now. When are you going to push him? Well, Buck pushed him. 
And Jacob deGrom gave us the answer. Right now, when he throws more than 90, 95 pitches, he's lost his effectiveness. We've seen it. We didn't see it in the Cubs series because they pulled him. But we've also seen him in other performances. I think the Rocky game jumps out at me from a few weeks ago where the deeper he is into a game, the more pitches he's thrown, the more human he becomes. Now, the second hit he gave up in that inning was a bloop. But then finally, he's battling, he's battling, he's battling. And then O'Neill Cruz takes him deep. He gives up the three-run home run. And it looks like a pedestrian performance because he gave up three runs in five innings, which in general is not very good. But you can't ignore the 13 strikeouts and the no walks. But you see how it happened. I'm not criticizing Buck. I love that he left him in the game. But it means we all have to have a discussion. Because this is going to get really, really tricky, and it's going to get tricky real, real fast. When do you take this guy out? Because I was screaming and yelling, look, I am I own it, but Ingo has to own it. He's always been screaming about pushing Jacob DeGrom. I want to push Jacob DeGrom. He's the best pitcher in baseball. For my money, he's the best pitcher in the sport. But we are seeing evidence that when he does get to 95, 98, 100 pitches. He ended up in this game at 101. So this was the first time he threw over 100 pitches. Joe was screaming for it. I was screaming for it in his last start. And look what we got. And so when they play the Atlanta Braves and Jacob DeGrom is on the mound and he just finished the sixth inning and he's at 96 pitches and he's dominating, what do you do? Do we go batter at a time? Say, all right, let's let's push Jake, but we're going to do it slowly. So, for example, forget the inning, because I think sometimes we get enamored by it. But it's only the sixth inning. Jake's thrown over 90 pitches. He gives up a leadoff hit. Should we take him out there? Nah, we'll give him another batter. Gives up a blue hit. Here comes O'Neill Cruz. Here comes the third time around the batting order. Cruz got him earlier for that double. Do you push him, or do you take him out? And so, I think as we move forward, it's going to be tricky. I love the guy. I think he's the best pitcher in the world, but we can't live in this world of... He's got to throw eight innings, real aces pitch eight innings. We need effectiveness. And if Jacob DeGrom is going to be less effective when he's in the high 90s and is going to give up bombs of home runs, then maybe as crazy as it sounds, we are better off having Seth Lugo or Adam Adovino in the game. Well, listen, here's the way I look at it, right? I would not go with DeGrom if he allows one guy on base in that inning, if he leads off and the guy gets on base, you got to pull him right away. That's that's the way I look at it. Because I look at go back to the Matt Harvey situation in, in the World Series, Game Five. The, you're pumped up, you're amped up, you want him to be on the mound. You face him, you give him too too many batters, right? And in that scenario, if it's gonna be, it, it my, I'd only give him one, only give him allow one mistake. If that mistake is the first guy. If, first guy and you're gonna pull him why even put him in that situation go well, right Jake, to the bullpen that, that's the way i look at said, it i think it was about three starts ago i don't like starting innings <clears throat> excuse me that i know i can't finish now that was in response to a, a pitch count and a pitch limit and i don't think there should be a pitch count limit on jacob Degrom necessarily more than it is you don't want him out there when he's not effective it's not about a magic number and so i know all starts aren't created equal his velocity was down in this start not to the point of being scared. The guy struck out 13 guys. He got tons of swing and misses. He also had a lot of foul balls. But his velocity, whether it was his fastball or a slider, was down just a tick. Nothing overwhelmingly concerning, but it was down. I think every start is going to be different. 
you have to be careful in how you analyze it, but that's why Buck Showalter gets paid a lot of money because it's not as simple as, all right, he's at 95 pitches. All right, it's the sixth inning. Okay, take him out. But I think what we saw in this game on Sunday is that, and I, I drink it, I own it, I drink the medicine, if you will, that it's not as easy as just push him. Just, just push him. Because look, we, we all want the best pitcher in baseball to go as deep as possible into a game, but you also don't want him to be less effective. And that's what happened in this game. Now, it sucks it's only the sixth inning. It sucks that Jacob DeGrom only pitched five innings. Look, I, I'd love for him to pitch seven or eight innings. I guess the negative was he was striking out so many guys, there were so many foul balls against him, that the pitch count started going up, 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 and that obviously took away his effectiveness when he gives up base hits to the eight and nine hitters, Collins and DeLay, before Cruz hits that three-run bomb of a home run. He wasn't exactly giving up hits to sluggers. So I'm not concerned about Jacob DeGrom. I don't want anyone to take it that way. It's more, it's a debate and a a conversation on how much you push him as, because he only has, you do the math, bro. He's got two more starts this season. That's it. I figured out what Buck was doing the other night. I got this rotation all figured out now. I laid out for all of you if you're curious. Because Buck won't tell us, but I figured out Buck. I did the math myself. I know the off days. And I think what he's doing is great, by the way. Because what he's doing is he's taking away a controversy, something we sort of alluded to last time on the Rico, that becomes moot. What I brought... Do you remember ah, what that was, Hoff? I think, I, I think the biggest issue is 162. One, game 162... Who's playing? Who's starting? Exactly. Now, I mentioned this uh, with Joe on Saturday. We talked about it on the Rico, and that was, could you really start Jacob DeGrom or Max Scherzer in game 162 for the division championship? Because if, God forbid, you lose that game and you're in the wild card series, that guy won't be able to pitch unless it's short rest, right? So I kind of thought about it and leaned towards... Nah, you can't do it. You can't pitch him. You can't consider it because what if, what if you lose? And how could you possibly live with the fact that Jacob DeGrom or Max Scherzer wouldn't pitch in a wild card series? Now, King Vader DM'd me the other day with a very compelling point on why he would pitch a DeGrom or Scherzer in 162, which I'll read and then I'll explain why this whole discussion is irrelevant. But sometimes it's good to have a discussion and then realize none of this matters. Evan, you definitely pitched DeGrom or Scherzer to win the division. You treat it like a four-game series. And if you win the first game against a weaker team, you move on and can set your rotation for the following series. If they lose, then you have to win the next two out of three games. And if they still win that series, they're lined up to set their pitching up for the next series. If you're thinking they can lose to Washington with DeGrom, you could also love with DeGrom against the tough. You couldn't love DeGrom against the tougher team in game one of the playoffs. I don't necessarily agree with that logic, but I understand, which is, hey, it's a gamble. I win. I've got them lined up. I lose. I still have them lined up for game one of the divisional series. But here's why it doesn't matter. If you notice the way things are lining up, and this is easier to do because there's so few games left in the season, and you assume there is no six starter, because why would there be? Max Scherzer is going to be activated to pitch Monday night in Milwaukee. So Max will pitch Monday. 
Carlos Carrasco and Taiwan Walker will follow on Tuesday and Wednesday. There's an off day Thursday. Chris Bassett will take his turn Friday. Jacob deGrom Saturday. Max Scherzer Sunday. Very easy. They have an off day Monday. They're going to follow their rotation. Why would they not? I don't think they're going to skip a Taiwan Walker or Carlos Carrasco. So they'll play two games against the Miami Marlins, and it would be Carlos Carrasco and Taiwan Walker with another off day. That gets us to Atlanta. And here's how it's lined up for the three games against the Braves. Game one, Chris Bassett. Game two, Jacob deGrom. Game three, Max Scherzer. So you've got your three best pitchers. I think we'd all agree with that. The three best pitchers are pitching in that series against the Braves. The order may not be the rankings, obviously. Chris Bassett's not the Mets' best starter, but who cares? I mean, it really doesn't matter the order. It's just a three-game series. It's not best of five, best of seven. It's a three-game series. That leaves you for the Washington series with Carlos Carrasco, Taiwan Walker, and in game 162, if you so choose, Chris Bassett. So you're not using one of your aces in game 162, but you do have lined up a guy that you probably have a lot of faith in to pitch 162. So Buck has made our discussion irrelevant. What it also means is that Max Scherzer and Jacob DeGrom from this day forward have two more starts left in the regular season. Two. Scherzer against the Milwaukee Brewers, the Oakland A's. Actually, Scherzer has three. I should correct myself because he's coming back off the IL tomorrow. So Scherzer has three. The Brewers, the A's, the Braves. DeGrom has the A's and the Braves. And that's it. So we try to figure out, Jacob DeGrom, how much do you push him? How many innings can he go? He only has two more starts of the regular season. There ain't a big sample size for us to figure this out. So barring any changes, and I can't see other than injuries why Buck would change any of this, do you agree with that setup of having those three in that order against the Braves and then the three I mentioned, Carrasco, Walker, Bassett, for the final three games against Washington? If you're asking me, do I trust Chris Bassett game 162 against the Washington Nationals, I say yes. I 100% do. I think Bassett against has proven against most teams he could be that dominant guy who in most rotations would be a number two at the very least. And in this, in this situation, he's the number Are you three. upset that Buck has taken away this discussion? Like, we, we really can't have it anymore because it's, <laughs> it's gone now. No, because, listen, the pressure's still on. Like, And there's a lot of things that I'm still overthinking right now. And you're talking about, like, Game 162. Like, it's going to come down to the wire. I just went through it. It went through the uh, the final stretch between the Braves and the Mets. All right? And I looked at their schedules. And I look at the Mets and I say, I realistically could see the Mets winning 11 games. But I look at the Braves' schedule and I go, I can realistically see them winning 12 games. Which means that that would mean the Mets would win by one game. They'd have 100, I think, four wins, and the Braves would have 103. But that's like me just, like, that's just projections. Yeah. Who knows? It's it's going to come down to the wire. Yeah, it's, it's tough, man. I, I was looking at the Braves' schedule. Obviously, credit to Atlanta. They defeated the Philadelphia Phillies. By the way, they no one cares about this, so I'll make it brief. The Atlanta Braves effed <laughs> me as a Met fan and as a fantasy player. I lost my semifinal matchup, and one of the things that destroyed me was I had a guy in the bullpen implode, which can always affect your ERA and whip at a major level if you have one bullpen arm implode. 
And the guy I had implode was Sir Anthony Dominguez of the Philadelphia Phillies, who didn't just implode my fantasy team, imploded the Phillies' chances of stealing game one, which I thought they were going to do. They had a two-to-one lead, two lead in the eighth inning. I'm thinking, ah, this is great. Phillies are going to take game one. This is tremendous. And then the Braves just destroyed Dominguez. He walked a bunch of guys. He gave up a bunch of runs. Uh, no one cares about my fantasy team, but we as Met fans care about the fact that the Phillies missed their best opportunity to win a game this weekend. I'm glad about one thing for the Phillies. If they're going to F us by not beating the Braves, I want them to miss the playoffs. I'm sorry. You don't get to choke against the Atlanta Braves. You don't get to spit the bit against the Atlanta Braves and still make the playoffs. Now, the problem we're running into, Met fans, is that the team that would have to catch the Phillies are the Brewers, a team that we better beat the crap out of this week. So uh, I guess I hope the Phillies make the playoffs only because it means that we'll have to have beaten the Atlanta Braves a bunch of times and we will have taken care of the Milwaukee Brewers. But getting back to the Braves' schedule, they've got six games with the Washington Nationals. And that is, look, let me give the Nats a little bit of credit. They not only beat us two out of three, as we all recall, They went out and beat the Cardinals three out of four. And the Cardinals are a legit team. So I guess maybe it gives me a sliver of hope that the Nationals are showing some fight. They're not just completely rolling over. They've basically been a 500 team over the last 20-so games, which is not a huge sample size. But I'm looking for breadcrumbs here, Hoff. I'm looking for anything that would convince me the Nationals can win one freaking game against the Atlanta Braves. But look, to the Braves' credit, a part of why they're tied essentially with the Mets is they've destroyed bad teams they've done a great job beating the teams they're supposed to beat they've struggled against good teams uh which hopefully matters when the Mets play them again but they've done a really good job of beating bad teams they have the national six times they've got those games with the Philadelphia Phillies and then obviously the showdown and I I look at it right now because the Mets have Milwaukee for three the Brewers are a good team and that first game is going to be tough with Corbin Burns on the mound Scherzer off the I.L. I assume there won't be too many restrictions on Max considering he only missed a couple of starts and he had a rehab start. So I would think that Max will be able to go. Knock on wood, he stays healthy. I mean, this is the second time he went on the IL. I'm going to be nervous, kind of like I've always been with Jake. Like, oh, is he all right? Uh, What was that grimace? Is he okay? How's he doing? Uh, But when you look at three with Milwaukee, three with Oakland, and you look at what Atlanta's doing in that same amount of time, three against Washington, four against Philadelphia, Dude, I'll tell you right now, bro. Get me to the Atlanta series tied. That's the way I'm looking at it now. And I know I mentioned about a week ago, the goal was to get there up one. And people were upset with that. Like, what do you mean up one? We should be up by three, up by four. Now that the Mets have completed the quote-unquote easy part of their schedule, and they didn't gain ground. They only went nine and seven. They didn't take advantage of the easy part of their schedule. And yes, the A's are bad and the Marlins are bad. So they're not done with the easy part of their schedule, but they're about to go play the Brewers. Like, let's not dismiss what the Brewers are capable of. You just saw what they are over the weekend against the New York Yankees. Now, they're not going to deal with Brandon Woodruff, who dominated, but they are going to deal with Corbin Burns. They are going to deal with that lineup. So I look at these the next week and a half getting to Atlanta Get me there tied, and I'll take my chances that the Mets can go out there and win a series. Well, listen, you you talk about the A's. They're they're an easy part of the schedule, too, but they're really not, though, because we've seen 
I don't want to compare it to the Yankees, but we saw the Yankees go out there and, and spit the bid on that too. Like, these bad teams may be bad on paper. They still have a little fight left in them. They're, they're trying to be spoilers. And if the Mets come out flat, traveling to the West Coast one last time, you just never know. And that that's a scary thing. It's like, I'd prefer just to be on the East Coast right now, play your division, win those games. That's all that matters. And they have a chunk of games left in the division, but I, I don't like to travel these last two weeks, the, the last two seasons, the next and, two seasons. And just knowing Atlanta's ability to beat the crap out of bad teams, they may go 6-0 against the Nationals. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that Washington puts up a fight, but you look at six against Washington, four against the Phillies. Ten games the Atlanta Braves are going to play before they take on the Mets. What are they doing in those ten games? Are they going 8-2? and two? Are they doing better than that? Are they doing worse than that? And look, the Mets are tied with the Braves. I don't want to hear the Mets are a game up. The Mets are not a game up. They're tied. You always have to look at the loss column because I assume the Braves are going to win the extra games. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. The extra games, by the way, if you look at the schedule, like the days where the Mets are off and the Braves are still playing, I'll tell you who it is. It's at Philadelphia on Thursday. It's at Washington next Monday. They're probably going to win those games. What are we talking about here? They're essentially tied. I'd love to be surprised by it. I'd love to be slapped in the face by the Nationals scoring eight runs in the first thing against the Braves and slowly pulling away. But credit to Atlanta, they have beaten these teams. So if the Mets can get to September 30th, tied for first place, which sets up a series that determines the division. I think it's as simple as that. If it is tied going into that three-game series, the winner of that series likely, likely wins the division. Because if the Mets lose two out of three, and they're a game back, and the Braves are playing the Marlins, it's over. The Braves are going to destroy the Marlins. They'll win the division. Good night. If the Mets win two out of three, it's a double deucer because then they're really two games up because they don't win the tiebreaker. See what I'm saying? Then again, if the Mets lose two out of three, they're a game back with the tiebreaker. Yeah, they still wouldn't win the division because, like I said, the Braves would beat the Marlins all three games. The Mets wouldn't gain the game back. Let's let's not talk about losing. Let's talk about winning. How are they going? How are they going to win these games? It's it's frustrating because, it, 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 and I had this comment about a week ago, and people were 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 pissing on me. They're like, "Dude, you can't use the Braves as an excuse. You can't use this as an excuse." But the fact is, this team is going to win over a hundred plus games. They're probably going to win hundred two right. games, right? Whatever it is, that's phenomenal. That's one of the best seasons that the Mets have ever had. And yet, people are going to consider it a collapse because they might not win the division. Blah blah blah. It's like. The Braves are really freaking good, and you can't take yeah, that but, away. But you Same know what, Pete, thing that's happened Pete, in the past. Pete, I, I would have agreed with you a month ago. Where if they and I, I think I said it to you, eh, this team could win 105 games, not win the division. If they don't win this division, there's clear things we can point to as to why they got swept at home by the Chicago Cubs. They lose the division by one game or even two games. We circle back to those three, and you're head to head with Atlanta. So if you lose that series to the Atlanta Braves, you could point to that and say, well, they had their chance. They had their three best pitchers on the mound in Atlanta. 
and they didn't win the series. That's why it is working out into a way where the Mets could win 100 games, not win the division, and yeah, we could still be pissed because we'll point to a series or games where they blew it, where they they, they had their opportunity. How many, how many wins do they have to have? Forget the Atlanta series. I'm talking about I, getting to the Atlanta series. I, they got eight games I, before they get to Atlanta. What do they got to do? Six and two? Is that good enough? I think they have to be. I, I said they have to have they have to win eleven games over this final stretch. Over the, the, the rest of the season, they need eleven wins. They'll take it to 104, and that'll uh, that'll win them the division. So whatever. Yeah, that I think is. that would be two out of three against Milwaukee. Because it's going to be tough to sweep the Brewers. Brewers are a good team. You go win that series, I think you have to be happy. It looks like they'll have the starting pitching edges in Game 2 and 3. There's no one announced for Game 2. Adrian Hauser is going to pitch the third game of the series. Not that pitching edges matter. Look at the Chicago series. The Mets had the pitching edge in every one of those games, and they lost. (laughs) And I think Max Scherzer, Corbin Burns is close to a push, if not advantage Milwaukee, considering Scherzer's coming off the injured list. But I would say two out of three in Milwaukee. I want to say a sweep in Oakland. The A's are a bad baseball team, but it is the West Coast. It is tricky. Two out of three in Oakland, both games against the Marlins. That gets you to, that's six and two. That gets you to six and two against the Braves. The hope is the Braves lose two games during during their ten games they play. Because they go eight and two, we go six and two. It's all queued up, tied for first place going into Atlanta. (laughs) Uh, Can it be easy? Can it be easy? You talk about this all the time. Like, I, I, I listen. I enjoy the playoff run. I, I'm excited. I'm in it. But my God, I would love it to be a well, little bit easier. Just to I got get, a tweet yeah. uh, this morning, or not? Not this morning. It was after the Mets won, and he said, "Can you believe that this is the anniversary of the Mets clinching the division in 2006, and our record is two games better than the team that clinched the division in 2006?" And I'm like, yeah. I mean, we are we're in uncharted territory for for guys our age. If you don't remember '88 or '86, which I'm too young for, this is what I said to you a few weeks ago: the best regular season team we've seen in our lifetime. And by the way, that may be true even if they don't win the division, because they are on their way to potentially winning 100 games, and they just happen to share a division with a really, really good team. But look. There are no excuses. They're going to get their crack against the Atlanta Braves. And if they could get to that series, even if they're down a game, you want to know why? If you're down a game going into that series, win two out of three, then you're tied with the tiebreaker. Like, unless they're two or three games back, and God willing, they're not. I mean, but then again, the Braves just go win every single game. Mets lose twice. There you go. It's right there in front of them. A couple of quick things I didn't get to that we should. Number one, Pete Alonso got hit by Oviata in the Sunday game and looked incredibly pissed off. I get it. It's just, it's annoying. Okay, what are you, you're going to bitch at Oviato? Like, he's not the one who drilled Starling Marte. It was Mitch Keller. He's not the one who's drilled you 15 times this season. And so, bitching does nothing. Uh, it really does. You want to go out there and beat the crap out of him? I guess you could do that. You know, we've always talked about it. If you're that ticked off about being hit, just run out there and beat someone up. I get the team frustration that they have. This has been going on since April. They are on the verge of breaking the all-time record that was set last year. So it's not that impressive of a record if it was set last year in terms of guys being hit in a particular season. But what are you going to do about it at this point? Look, the Marte thing sucks because it's really hurt this team. And I don't even know when he's coming back. 
Like, have we even really received a legitimate update on when Marte's coming back? At this point, get him back for the Atlanta series. I assume he's going to miss this entire road trip. I assume he's not going to play the two games against the Marlins. You know what? Forget that. Just get him back for the playoffs. Whether it's the wild card series or the divisional series, get Starling Marte back. But Alonzo was pissed. The best is emptied. It really turned into a lot of nothing. Well, did you see, by the way, that uh, the John Boy did a breakdown of Alonzo John at uh, Samson the other night? <laughs> after oh, so the what, did he, what did he end like, up saying to, to Samson when he hit the foul home run and then ends up drawing a walk and then draws it with Adrian Samson? So the funny thing is this, is they share the same Oh, agent. really? So they're, fr- they're friendly with each other. But when Alonzo threw the bat, he Samson's basically telling him, like, don't, please don't do that. Like, I don't appreciate it. Like, that's not good. Like, for, like, the fans, don't throw the bat like that. I just don't – I don't like to see that stuff. Like, that's what he was basically saying and verbalizing to the umpire. And Alonzo was just saying, just pitch the ball. So Samson the is the one ball. who started I, it? Yeah. Pete's a, that's Pete's an emotional guy. You know, whether it's breaking bats or flipping his bat because he's frustrated over a walk in which he just missed a foul home run. He's an emotional guy. All I care about is him producing. I don't give a crap how emotional he is as long as he gets big hits. That's all that matters. But hopefully no more Mets get hit, no more Mets get hurt. The Mets have a magic number of two to clinch a playoff spot, which is the most anticlimactic playoff spot clinching I've ever seen. When the Mets (laughs) won the wild card in 2000, there was a celebration. Armando Benitez was jumping up and everybody was happy. Obviously, 1999 was a one-game playoff. Um Clinching a playoff spot is a big deal for this franchise. It really is. I mean, how many times in our lifetime have we seen the New York Mets in the playoffs? I can tell you off the top of my head. 16, 15, 6, 0, 99. That's it. That's five times. I don't even count 2016 because it ain't the real playoffs. But for the sake of this conversation, they made the playoffs in 2016. (laughs) That was six years ago. Like, the Mets don't make the playoffs a lot, so I'm not endorsing that there needs to be any kind of celebration because all they've got to do is win one game against the Brewers and they'll officially clinch a playoff spot. There'll be a little check mark next to their name in the standings if you look at the newspaper or MLB.com or my <laughs> scorebook because I, I do put a little uh, P next to the Houston Astros. They've clinched a playoff spot. A little D next to the L.A. Dodgers. They've clinched the division. But I think because of the divisional race and the fact that that's everyone's focus – I would assume it's going to be a very low-key celebration. But I want to tell you something depressing, Pete. Go play a little game. A little fun, itsy-bitsy game. In 2016, the New York Mets made their last playoff appearance. Okay? On the playoff roster for that team. Okay? Not guys on the injured list, because Jacob DeGrom was on that team. But he was on the, I think, disabled list at the time. But now we call it the injured list. How many of those guys are still on the New York Mets today? I'm going to throw out a number two. You're going to say two? I'm saying two. No, no, no. It's not two. Not two. It's not even close to two. Two? Who? From the current roster? If you think there were two guys on the 2016 playoff roster that are still on the New York Mets, I'd love for you to tell me who the hell those two guys are. (laughs) Yeah, I don't even know. There's nobody. (laughs) In fact, 
McNeil, McNeil didn't get called up. No, no, Jeff guess, right? McNeil, McNeil was not around. on that team by that point. McNeil got called up in 2018. Pete Alonso was called up in 2019. Uh, uh, Brandon Nimmo. Nimmo may have been called up that year, I think, but I don't think he was. He wasn't on the postseason roster, which is what I was saying. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make even more depressed because, all right, that's interesting. Maybe you're listening, saying, okay, sure. Yeah, Curtis Granderson isn't on the Mets anymore. You ready for this one? I'm going to turn it up a notch. How many guys on the 2016 playoff roster actively plays Major League Baseball anymore? See, that's the, that's the thing that really makes me laugh. Forget about who's on the Mets. How many guys are active you count Major League Baseball players anymore? <laughs> Do you count a Conforto? That's a great question. That's a great question because he was on that <laughs> roster. Uh, Michael Conforto. You know what? I will count him. That's, that's fine. I'll count him. <laughs> Put it this way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the list of the guys. On the, I'll do it that way. I'm going to tell you who is on. One hand? Oh, one hand. Is it one hand? Yeah. Here are the guys from the 2016 <laughs> playoff roster. First of all, Noah Syndergaard is still active. He obviously made the start. We all remember that. Noah pitched a hell of a game. Seven scoreless innings. Granderson made that incredible catch that could have lived in Met history if the Mets won the game, but they didn't. So Noah Syndergaard is absolutely active. That's number one. Fernando Salas. I have no idea where he is. Oh, Hansel Robles was on that team. He got DFA'd recently. I'd say he's still active. I don't know where he signed or where he is right now, but he pitched Major League Baseball this year, so he definitely counts as active. That's two. Addison Reed. Gone. He, who knows where he is? Robert Gazelman. I think Gazelman's in the minor leagues with the Cubs, if I'm not mistaken. I think. Uh, yeah, Cubs. It says Cubs. All right. Unactive. Jairus Familia. Yes, he pitched this year. He just got DFA by the Red Sox after he was DFA by the Philadelphia Phillies. And he was the GOAT in that game. He gave up a home run to Connor Gillespie or whatever the hell his name is. Josh Edgen. Gone. Oh, my Jerry God. Jerry Blevins. Don't we see him on TV every once in a while? S-O-Y. And then yeah. finally, Bartolo Colon. <laughs> now, look, in oh fairness, my. there were some other guys who are still on the New York Mets and guys who are active, just not on the playoff roster. So I'll give you an example. Seth Lugo actually pitched pretty well for the Mets down the stretch in 2016. So I, I know it's a little bit misleading, but just play the game. I'm talking about active guys on the roster for the uh, for the wild card wild card game. All right. Was Darno not playing? Was he? Travis Darno did not start the game. Rene Rivera, who we all fell in love with at the time, was the starting catcher. <laughs> they had three catchers, two of which are active: Kevin Plowecki, who just got DFA'd, I think, by uh, the Red Sox, and Travis Darno, who's obviously blossomed into a star. But the rest of these guys are definitely inactive. Here you go: As Drubal Cabrera gone. Eric Soup Campbell, gone. Kelly Johnson, gone. Ty Kelly, gone. James Loney, gone. Jose Reyes, he played an old-timers game, gone. TJ Rivera, we all love TJ, gone. Jay Bruce, retired. Yoenis Cespedes, chasing bulls. Michael Conforto, sort of active. Curtis Granderson, and finally, Juan Ligaris. 
The whole point of this exercise is that six years was a long effing time ago. And now is the last time the Mets played a playoff game. And those were the guys on the freaking roster for the New York Mets that year. Yuck. It's, emba- it's embarrassing. It's, it's literally like you think about the Yankees, and I, I don't always want to do this, but like you think about the Yankees, they just got rid of Brett Gardner for the first time this year. He was on the, the World Series team in 2009. Yes, he wasn't was. He? Yes, he was. I mean, you always have at least one guy who lingers. We don't have a guy that lingers. I know. I think I think Lugo is the only <laughs> other guy besides the. I'm trying to think. I think Nimmo may have gotten to the major leagues that year, so there must have been a few guys that at least participated on that team, and that was an interesting team because remember, they they felt dead and buried in July, and they got really really hot. It all started in a series against San Francisco. They got real hot. They had a huge September. They ended up making the postseason. Unfortunately, they ran into Madison Bumgarner. And that's one of those rare cases where I will tip my hat to the opposing pitcher and not bitch about the Mets not getting big hits against him. Like, he was ultra-dominant. Wilmer Flores was on the 2016 team. He did not make the postseason roster. Uh, David Wright was on the 2016 team, as we may recall. Uh, Matt Reynolds, who's still an active major leaguer. Brandon Nimmo did come up. He played... 32 games. Actually, was pretty productive at 274. Uh, Jacob DeGrom, as I mentioned. Steven Matz, who's still an active major leaguer. And then you've got Seth Lugo, who pitched pretty well. And that's pretty much it. The rest of them are all gone and out of baseball. But that's the last time the New York Mets made the playoffs. So if they clinch this week, and they better, because it, all it takes is one win against the Brewers, while the Mets won't have a wild celebration, we all should recognize that it is special to make the playoffs. It is, and I, I hope that in the years to come, we will become like Yankee fans where we'll expect to make the playoffs. We're making the playoffs won't be a big deal. But for me, making the playoffs is a big deal. And as much as we all want to win the division, rightfully so, let's not ignore that we don't get to do this very often. We just don't. You know, if you're younger than me, if you're not 39 years old, but let's say you're 25 years old listening to Rico right now, how many playoff games have you experienced? I feel like I haven't experienced a lot, but what about you? What would you, if you don't remember 2006, then all you have is 15 and 16. If you do remember 2006 and you don't remember 99 and 2000, then all you have is 2006, 15 and 16. We've got those plus 99, 2000. That's it. The fact that I could recite almost every playoff game I've seen the New York Mets play doesn't say anything about my memory, doesn't say anything about me. It says something about the Mets. It says something about the fact there aren't that many playoff games to remember. So whenever they clinch, whether, and hopefully it's Monday, but whatever it is, let us all take a deep breath, not be mocked by our Yankee fan friends, and celebrate, we should, the fact that we're a playoff team. Now, we want more than that. We don't want to just be in the postseason and get dumped out quickly like that pathetic showing in 2016. I know it wasn't pathetic. Bumgarner's great, like I said, but it sucked. The whole th- that whole thing sucked. And the truth is, if they beat Bumgarner that day, they were so ravaged by injuries, the Cubs were going to absolutely crush them in the NLDS. But Bartolo Colon would have gotten the ball in game one, and Seth Lugo would have gotten the ball in game two. <laughs> that would have been something else, man. There's no doubt in my mind that Cubs were getting revenge on that 2016 team. But I do wonder, one last thing about 2016, since we're talking about history. If the New York Mets had re-signed Daniel Murphy 
and Daniel Murphy, who put together an MVP caliber season for the Washington Nationals, was not a member of the Washington Nationals, but was a member of the New York Mets. Neil Walker would not be a Met. Murphy would be a Met. I know there's a stat called war. And it's funny, on Saturday's show, Joe Beningo cited war without citing war because he hates war. But he said, and I quote, Boy, Aaron Judge must add 10 wins to the New York Yankees. Well, don't you think, bro? And I'm like, you just cited war. <laughs> but but here's my point about war. The Washington Nationals won that division by eight games that year, okay? If you put Daniel Murphy on the Mets and you put whomever on the Nationals, Brandon Phillips, who I think they were going at, whoever, it, Neil, Walker, Neil Walker, yeah, we'll just flip the two of them. <laughs> if Daniel Murphy was a six-war player and Neil Walker was, let's say, a two-war player, that's four games the Mets would improve, but it's four games the Nationals would decrease. We win the division. <laughs> and if we win the division, I don't know. Maybe the whole world's different. Maybe, maybe you know, we beat the L.A. Dodgers in the NL Divisional Series, and at least we talk about 2016 in a much more glowing way than we talk about it now, which is like a fart in the wind because they played one stinking game, didn't score a run, and got sent home. You're talking to the wrong person because I was so upset when Dale Murphy did not come back to the Mets. Uh, you know, that that to me was a real kick in oh, the Oh, of board, course. To be fair. And that... And, and, and it's, it, listen, when you have a pure hitter, which is why when they were thinking about trading Jeff McNeil, I'm like, when you have guys who could hit above average, like at a 320 pace, why would you get rid of, why do you not want them on the team? Like, I don't care what they believe in. Get, bring them in. Keep them I around. I never didn't like Daniel Murphy. I want to make that clear. But I never thought he was going to go to Washington and compete for a triple crown. No, as great as he was during the postseason that year, I never thought that he was going to then go to Washington and be an MVP caliber player. So I admit that. I, I can't live in denial and scream and yell saying, boy, I knew that was going to happen. Despite his great postseason, I did not think that would happen with Daniel Murphy. But it is what it is, and he came back to Old Timers Day. And so all is right with the world with Daniel Murphy. But the Mets still had a year in 2016 that could have looked far, far, far different if Murphy was on their team and not the Washington Nationals. We will give you another Rico Bronia after the series with Milwaukee. It'll definitely be ready for you to download in time for the off day Thursday morning. And hopefully, the Mets will have maintained where they are. That's literally my goal now over the next few days and next few weeks till we get to the Atlanta series. Maintain being even with Atlanta in the loss column. That's the goal. If they can walk into that series, even with the Braves... I will certainly take my chances. There'll be a lot of football talk on WFN because the Giants are 2-0. The Jets are 1-1. So you want to make sure you're listening to Tiki and Tierney. Pete Hoffman will be on that program 10 a.m. on Monday. And me and Craig, 2 o'clock. By the way, Craig predicted that New York would have a perfect weekend. He said they are going to go 8-for-8. And he was almost right. But unfortunately, the New York Yankees could not hold their end of the bargain up. The Jets won, the Giants won, the Mets swept the Pittsburgh Pirates, but those damn Yankees, they couldn't do it for us on Friday and Saturday, those sons of bitches. Anyhow, I'm sure Craig will take credit either way and say, ah, it was close enough, which in fairness, he was. I mean, that was a perfect New York sports weekend. 
Thank you for listening to Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 